Hey guys, this episode is going to be a little bit different. I'm going to be talking about this one bank slash brokerage bonus that I thought was interesting. And then I'm also going to be talking about just some general personal finance discussion. I know that most of my listeners probably have a pretty good understanding about how things work. Since if you're good at churning, you're probably also good at handling finances. But I'm always surprised when people don't know what a backdoor Roth IRA is or that the employee stock purchase plan is just free money, just stuff like that. But even if you don't learn anything from this episode, I still think it's good just to kind of have that reinforcement because this stuff can be very complicated and there's still a lot of stuff that I don't know about it. So before I get started, I just wanted to remind everyone again, because I haven't talked about this in a while, that I do have a deal alerts mailing list and you can sign up for that at churninglife.com. I try not to spam people and only send out deal alerts when it's something that's really good or something that hasn't really been picked up by other blogs and it's free to sign up so if you're interested feel free to check that out. Okay, so before I continue, I want to say that this is not financial advice and this is not tax advice. This stuff can be pretty complicated, so I'm not going to guarantee that everything I'm saying is 100% correct. Definitely do your own research and consult a professional for your own situation. So the first thing that I wanted to talk about is this hybrid savings plus brokerage account. It's called Join Save. I picked this up from the Daily Churns podcast, and I haven't really seen it talked about anywhere else, so I decided to do a deep dive on this and figure out how it actually works, because it looks quite confusing. So I'm going to talk about how the basic account works first, and then I'll talk about what the sign-up bonus is. So they have two different products. They have what's called the Market Savings and the Market Trust. So the one that I'm trying to churn is the Market Savings. The other one is called Market Trust, and that one has a higher term. It's a five-year term instead of a one-year term, and I think it also requires a higher deposit. It says it's designed more for like a retirement account. I haven't really looked too much into it, but I saw the words whole life annuity, and I was like, I'm out. So how the market savings account works is that you will deposit $1,000 for a one-year term and then they will invest an equal amount into one of their hedge funds of your choosing. So they do have a few different funds. I just chose the one that said risk-controlled S&P 500, so I'm hoping it's similar to S&P 500. And so what they're saying is that at the end of this one year term, you can then withdraw the profits from the investment. And if there are no profits or if the hedge fund went down in value, then you just get your $1,000 back without any losses. So again, these are my interpretations from how I understand it. Um, feel free to fact check this yourself. And so what we would call this in the gambling world would be a free roll, where you can collect any of the gains from the stock market, but you can't lose money on the investment. So you might be thinking this sounds too good to be true, and there are a few catches. First of all, for the privilege of investing in their hedge fund, you will be paying a 0.35% fee, but this can only be deducted from the gains. So if there are no gains when you withdraw, then you won't be paying and then the second catch is the one-year term. So if you try to withdraw your balance before your one-year term is up, then they will charge you the federal funds rate plus 0.5%. 
plus the 0.35% managed fee prorated for the rest of the one-year term. So suppose that you have six months left in your one-year term and you want to withdraw your money for whatever reason, and the federal funds rate is 5%, so then you'd be paying 5.5% plus 0.35% for that six months. And the reason why they're charging you this like that is that when you make that commitment to invest for that one year term, they're counting on you for having that money in there for one year. So in order to balance their books for the hedge fund, they will be borrowing that $1,000 and putting it back into the hedge fund as if you never left. So I'm gonna dive in a little bit more into the math behind this free roll in a sec. But the reason why they have this one-year term and they don't want you to just be able to withdraw at any time is because if the market crashes and you can just withdraw your $1,000 without any loss, it's them that are losing. So they want to be able to at least borrow that money back and hope that the market will recover by the end of that one-year term. Okay, so I'm just going to talk about a bit of basic probability theory here and how even with the one-year term, this is still a pretty great deal. So the basic principle is if you're getting a free roll, then you want the variance to be as high as possible. So I'll just give a few examples to show why that is. So suppose in one scenario, you invest $1,000 and you'll get a guaranteed $100. So that's 10%. And there just the expected value is just $100 and you'll get that 100% of the time. So now think of a scenario on the other side of that where you invest $1,000, but 50% of the time you're going to lose that $1,000 and then the other 50 50% of the time you'll win $1,200. So if you multiply that minus 1,000 times 50% and the plus 1,200 by 50%, you will end up with an expected value of $100. So it's the same as in the previous example, but if it's a free roll, then when you lose that $1,000, you actually don't lose anything. So in the free roll, you would just change that minus 1,000 to a zero and you would just get 50% of $1,200, which would be 600. So that would be your EV. So I know a lot of people might not like taking risks, but would you rather have a guaranteed $100 or a 50% chance at winning $1,200? So in order to maximize your EV from this free roll, from this hybrid savings investment product, you want to be picking the fund that has the most variance. And I think that would be the risk-controlled S&P 500 fund. It is the one at the bottom of the list, so I think it's the one they don't want you to be picking because they know that it's worse for them and better for you. So I don't exactly know what the difference between their risk-controlled version of S&P 500 and just a normal S&P 500 ETF, but I'm just going to work out quickly the math behind if it was an S&P 500 ETF. So if you look back at the 100 years of S&P 500 since its creation, including reinvested dividends, the annualized return is about 10%. But then if you look at the historical data and you just delete all of the years that were a negative and change them to a zero, so that's 30 out of 95 years, 
Now your annualized return is about 15%. So by allowing you to withdraw your money after one year without any loss, they're basically giving you about 5% of EV. So that would be if it was really an S&P 500 ETF. Of course, this is a risk-controlled S&P 500 hedge fund, so it might be worse than that, but I think you still are coming out ahead of that 0.35% fee. And so you might be thinking, and of course it's good to be thinking whenever you see something that looks too good to be true, you know, how is this fintech making money? Well, there's a few things. First is that they hope that the market won't go down, in which case they'll just collect that 0.35% fee. They also hope that you choose one of their other hedge fund products. I think they have something bond related where there's a lot less of a chance for them to lose money. And then they also have that other market trust product which I'm sure they're just raking a bunch of money off of fees from that. And then they're also, of course, hoping that you keep your money in there for more than one year because that will give them more time for the fund to recover in the case that it's at a loss. So if you wanted to take this a little bit further, there are some ways to hedge against this free roll. One thing I could think of would just be shorting the S&P 500. So if the market goes down after one year, you could just get your $1,000 back from that, and then you would collect a little bit of money from your short. But you will be sacrificing some EV there because, yeah, shorts are almost always minus EV because stocks go up. You could also buy a long-term put option as a hedge, but yeah, definitely make sure that you know what you're doing before you decide to do any of these kind of things. So yeah, that's how the join save account works. And you might be thinking, why am I signing up for this? And they actually have a referral sign up bonus offer where if you sign up and deposit $1,000, they will give you an additional $5,000 free roll. So they're not giving you $5,000, but they're giving you any gains on that $5,000 that's invested in their fund. So like I said before, based on historical data, the S&P 500 has returned about 15% on average if you change all of the negative years to zero. Of course, no one knows what the EV of the stock market actually is. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Some people might think it's lower because of Russia or China or whatever, but this is the data that we have to go on from the past 100 years, and that includes multiple world wars, just saying, but yeah, anyways, and this also isn't exactly the S&P 500, it's some sort of risk-controlled S&P 500 fund, but you have to think that the EV is at least 5% because that's the risk-free rate, it might not be the full 15%, but it's probably somewhere in the middle. So if you multiply that by $5,000, it's at least a few hundred dollars in EV. So yeah, if you want to get that $5,000 free roll, I will put my referral link in the show notes. You can also use the Daily Turns referral if you want to support him. I don't want to sound like I'm only talking about this to get the referral. But with referral is the only way that you can get that welcome offer. I will say though that this is like a new type of product and this fintech hasn't been around for that long. So I would just be a bit cautious. 
I will only be giving them $1,000 in order to meet the requirements to get the 5k free roll. It does say that your 1k deposit is FDIC insured, but still, when you have to read 18 paragraphs of fine print to figure out how their product actually works, that doesn't give me a whole lot of confidence in them. Okay, so I'm gonna move on to the next section and here I'm gonna talk about an introduction to personal finance. So again, this is not financial advice. I just, I'm gonna talk about some things that I wish I knew when I started working. And for me, that was only a few years ago, so I'm still kind of learning this stuff. But even if you have been working for a long time, they do keep adding new rules. For stuff like taxes and 401k, I think the HSA product is relatively new and they also just said that you could roll over a 529 plan into a Roth IRA. So yeah, I feel like there's always new things you have to stay on top of when you're trying to think about your personal finance. So the first thing is federal income tax. And as everyone knows, this is done on a progressive scale. So for 2023, if you're single, the first $11,000 is taxed at 10%. Then from 11,000 to $44,725 is taxed at 12%. And then the tax rates just kind of keep going up from there. If you're married, then the tax brackets are basically doubled for each one. And if you are what's called head of household, which is basically like a single parent or a single person with, that's living with a dependent, then it's roughly 1.5x. So typically when one partner is earning a different amount of money than the other, they will save money on taxes when they get married because income from the higher earning spouse would go towards filling up some of those lower tax brackets from the lower earning spouse. So next there is state tax and there are actually nine states that do not have state income tax and those are Alaska, Florida, Nevada, New Hampshire, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Washington, and Wyoming. Typically state income tax is between 5 and 10 percent. And with state tax, typically the question comes up with remote or hybrid work and working in another state than where you're living in. So a lot of states have different rules on this, but typically you will first pay taxes for the state in which the work is being done. And then you will get a credit for the taxes paid on your residence state income tax return. So at the end of the day, usually what you're paying is the higher of the two states income tax rates. Then if you're in some kind of hybrid situation, it would be prorated based on how many days you worked in each state. So a lot of professional athletes have to deal with this where they are playing all of their games in different states and they are technically working when they are playing a game. So their tax professional would need to do a bunch of calculations to figure out how much taxes they need to be paying for each state. So there are some exceptions to this. I did hear that for New York, even if you are hybrid, you still need to be paying New York tax as if you worked there the entire year. So definitely need to talk to a tax professional if you're in this kind of situation with different states. But when I was living in Washington, which is a no income tax state, and I was working for an employer that was based in Oregon, I didn't really go into the office that much, but I did need to do some computation to figure out like the percentage of the work days that were 
Delaware and Oregon. Then there's the Social Security and Medicare tax, and this is done at a flat rate, and it is only on earned income, so that would be like from a W-2 job. So the Social Security part is 6.2%, and then the Medicare part is 1.45%. So you will be paying this amount deducted from your paycheck and then your employer will also be paying this amount on your behalf. So if you are self-employed, then you would need to be paying the entire 12.4% Social Security tax and 2.9% Medicare tax on your own. So there is a cap on Social Security tax. You only have to pay it on the first $160,200 in earned income. And this is done on an individual basis. So it doesn't matter if you are married or single. Each person has their own 160k cap. I think the theory here is that since the social security benefits are capped, then the taxable income amounts for them should be capped as well. However, it is something that Congress likes to debate a lot because your income tax rate will actually go down after you reach 160k, which is kind of strange. And then one other thing is that there is an additional Medicare tax of 0.9% that is only paid by the employee, and that is on earnings over $200,000 for a single person and $250,000 for a joint filing. So the Social Security and Medicare tax, those are only on earned income, like from doing work, while interest income and dividend income, you only have to pay the federal and state income tax. And then capital gains tax, which is a tax that is from the earnings on a stock or another asset. If you hold the asset for more than one year, for a single person, the long-term capital gains rate is 0%. If your income is up to $44,625, and then this amount is doubled if you're married, married filing jointly. And keep in mind that any gains do count towards this threshold. So for example, if you made $20,000 from your job, then the remaining $24,625 of long-term capital gains would be at 0%. So managing these kind of thresholds are important for someone who's doing an early retirement. So like if you no longer earn any income from working, then you might want to think about how you can optimize your capital gains to take advantage of that 0% tax rate. Then there's also stuff like healthcare subsidies and stimulus checks and some different kind of tax credits like electric car tax credit, that kind of thing. These are all dependent on your income, and so, yeah, if you're retired and trying to figure out how much to withdraw from pre-tax 401k and capital gains and stuff, you have to do a lot of thinking to try and figure out what the best number is for your income to be. Okay, so those are the main types of income tax, and you might be thinking, how can I optimize so that I'll be paying less tax? One thing that you might have access to is an employer-sponsored 401k. The employee contribution limit for 2023 is $22,500. And then if you're above the age of 50, you get an additional $7,500 limit. And the employer contribution limit for a 401k is not per job, by the way. So if you had worked multiple jobs, you don't get to have 23.5k for each job. But these are just the employee limits. If you have any kind of employer match, that does not count against this limit. 
but the combined employer plus employee contribution limit is $66,000. And then you get an additional $7,500 on top of that if you're above the age of 50. So you might be thinking, why is the total contribution limit so high? And I don't really know. And there are a couple of ways that you can hit that 66K limit. One of those is if you are the employer, so like if you're self-employed, then you can contribute up to 25% of your net earnings as the employer. So that's separate from the 22.5K limit for being the employee. And then the other way to hit this 66K limit is only available with some employers 401k plans, but what you can do is contribute what's called after-tax contributions. If your employer allows it, you can roll those after-tax contributions into your Roth 401k. I think some employers also allow you to move this into your Roth IRA. I'm not sure if that's a thing or not, all of this really depends on your employer and first they have to allow those after-tax contributions and then they have to allow the in-plan conversion to the Roth 401k. For some plans you have to call them every paycheck to do the conversion and for some plans it's automatic. You want to do the conversion immediately so that you'll avoid paying any taxes on the earnings for when the money was in that after-tax designation. And this whole process is called the Mega Backdoor Roth. Okay, so that is how to get money into the 401k. And so you might be thinking, what are the benefits of doing this? And what are the other rules? There are two types of contributions. There are traditional contributions and Roth contributions. So for traditional contributions, those will reduce your taxable income immediately for the year that they're contributed. The earnings will grow tax-free, and then once you reach age 59 and a half, you can withdraw the money and you'll be paying ordinary income tax when you withdraw. So one thing to note is that traditional 401k contributions do not get you out of paying Social Security and Medicare tax for those wages. And another thing to think about is something that I was just learning, and that is what it means when we say the earnings are growing tax-free. And what this refers to is the taxes on the interest and the dividends from the investments in the 401k. So if you just take an example of the S&P 500, that has a dividend yield of about 2%. And then if you're paying that 15% tax rate on the qualified dividends, which is basically if you've held the stock for a certain period of time, then the math works out to 0.3%. So you can think of it as you're earning an extra 0.3% on the balance than if you had it in a regular taxable brokerage account. And then if you were holding bonds or stocks that were yielding more dividends, then the benefit of it growing tax-free would just be even better. So yeah, this is just something that's overlooked and I just learned about how the math works when it says earnings are growing tax-free. So then there's also Roth contributions and these are taken out after you've already paid taxes and then the earnings grow tax-free and then once you reach age 59 and a half, it can be withdrawn without any taxes or penalties. So those are both traditional and Roth 401ks and then there's also what's called an IRA, which is an individual retirement account. Those are separate from your workplace's 401k plan 
And with an IRA, you can invest in pretty much anything instead of 401ks, where usually there's just a few different mutual funds that you have to pick from. So IRAs can be kind of tricky. So for a Roth IRA, there is an income limit. It is 153,000 for single filers and 228,000 for married. But the traditional IRA does not have any income limit. There is a limit if you want the traditional IRA contributions to be tax deductible. And I think it also depends on whether or not you have an employer sponsored 401k plan. But what you can do is first contribute to a traditional IRA and then convert that to a Roth. So this is what's called a backdoor Roth IRA. And yes, the IRS knows about it, even though it's called backdoor. The end result is essentially the same as if you had just contributed to a Roth IRA. It still has that limit of $6,500 in contributions if you are under the age of 50, and then $7,500 if you are age 50 or older. But yeah, I'm always surprised that this isn't common knowledge. Like I talk to a lot of people who seem to have never heard about it. Oftentimes I hear people say, oh, shucks, I'm above the income limit for a Roth IRA. It usually comes off as a brag about how high their income is. But yeah, because you can do the backdoor, the income limit isn't really a thing in practice. There is a catch though, and that is if you have any money that is sitting in pre-tax IRA. So maybe you had rolled that over from a 401k plan from an old job. Even if that money is sitting in a different account, you would have to prorate your conversion with that money. So this is what's called the pro rata rule. So typically, if you wanted to do a backdoor Roth, you would try not to roll any 401k money into IRA and instead just roll over your 401k from your old job to your new job. But I don't know, there might be some plans that don't allow this kind of rolling over. If you already have money that's sitting in an IRA, it might be possible to roll that into the company 401k. So it's not too late to fix this if you've already done that. Okay, so now let's talk about the IRA and 401k early withdrawal rules. So I already said that in most cases you need to wait until age 59 and a half to withdraw the money without any penalty. There are a few exceptions though. For a Roth IRA, you can withdraw the contributions at any time tax and penalty free and then there are a few other ways to access that money one is for making a withdrawal of up to ten thousand dollars in earnings to pay for a first-time home purchase and in this case you don't have to pay the penalty and then if the Roth IRA has been held for more than five years then you don't need to pay tax that's the most common one, I think. Some of the less common ones are if you become disabled or if you need to pay for some expenses related to a birth or, or adoption. And there's a few others as well. Then for a Roth 401k, it's not quite the same where you can just only withdraw contributions. Whenever you make a withdrawal from a Roth 401k, it'll be prorated between earnings and contributions. I don't think there's any way to get around that. But if you roll that into a Roth IRA, then the contributions and earnings can be separated. So this is just something to keep in mind if you're doing that mega backdoor 
or Roth that you can't really withdraw the money directly from the 401k, but once you leave the company and roll it into a Roth IRA, then those contributions and earnings will be separate. Another way to access the 401k money is to take out a 401k loan. And with this, it can kind of be dependent on your 401k plan and whether or not they allow this. But typically, you can take out a loan for up to 50% of the balance in the 401k. And then while you are in that loan, you cannot make any further contributions to your 401k. And you'll just be paying it back with the paycheck deductions. And then there will also be some interest added on to that as well. But the interest will just go back into your 401k account. So it's kind of like you're paying interest to yourself. So this is not really ideal because while you have that loan, you can't be making contributions, so you wouldn't be getting that employer match. And then also, if you get fired or have to leave the company for whatever reason, that entire balance would become due. And if you can't pay it, then you'd be left with paying that 10% penalty plus the income tax. So there is one other popular way to withdraw that 401k money without paying the penalty. That can be helpful for people who are trying to retire before age 59 and a half. And that is by making conversions from pre-tax money to Roth. And when you do that, you will be taxed on the balance. But then if you wait five years from when you do the rollover, you can withdraw that amount that was rolled over tax and penalty free. So with this one, you do need to plan ahead by five years, but it can be a way to access that money in an early retirement if you need it. And this is what is called a Roth conversion ladder. And there is another way that you can access the 401k or IRA money, and that is through a 72T substantially equal periodic payments plan. It is basically what it sounds, and there's a calculator that tells you how much you can withdraw for each payment. I haven't really looked into it too deeply, but that could be something to look into if you need another way to access the 401k monies in retirement. And this is still talking about before you reach the age of 59 and a half, because of course, after you reach that age, you don't have to pay any penalties. So a common question that people might have is, should I invest in Roth or should I invest in traditional? And it really depends on your situation. I think in general, it's good to have both because then in retirement, you'll have more flexibility over your taxable income to make sure that you're under certain thresholds and taking advantage of all the tax benefits that you can. But maybe if your income is not really that high for the year and you're not filling up those lower tax brackets, then it might be better to do Roth and just pay the tax now rather than later. Another consideration might be if you're living in a no income tax state and you want to retire in a state that does have income tax, then it might be better to do Roth there as well. Another argument is that some people think that the tax rates will be higher in the future because of the Democrats and they just always want to keep increasing the taxes. I do see some reason to that argument. If you look at the national debt and every year there's a deficit, something has to change and probably what needs to happen is that the tax rate is increased. 
but it's kind of hard to predict the future on that one. Okay, so I think I've covered most of the basics on how 401ks and IRAs work, and I just wanted to talk about one other investment vehicle that can be used for retirement, and that is an HSA. So an HSA is pretty much the most tax efficient account that you can have. It is what is called triple tax advantaged. And what that means is you can deduct any contributions from your income in the year that you contributed and the earnings grow tax free. And then if you withdraw for qualified medical expenses, then you don't need to pay tax when you withdraw either. So it can be kind of a combination of both a Roth and a traditional account. So you can only qualify for this kind of account if you have a high deductible health plan, but the money that is in the account can actually be invested in like stocks or mutual funds or whatever. If you are contributing through your employer-sponsored HSA, then your investment options might be a bit more limited, but if you just like open an account with Fidelity, then you can just invest in anything pretty much. The advantage of having your HSA through your employer and contributing through paycheck deductions is that when you do that, you can get the contributions deducted from your Social Security and Medicare wages, whereas if you contribute elsewhere, then you cannot get that deducted, but you can still deduct against your ordinary income tax. Another thing is that your employer may give you some free money if you go through the HSA through them, so that's also something to keep in mind, but usually it's only like $500 or something. And then the contribution limit for an individual for 2023 was $3 thousand eight hundred and fifty dollars and then for a married couple it would be double that and then employer contributions do count against this limit so it's not like the 401k where that's a separate limit so the premise of an hsa is to pay for medical expenses but unless you have like a medical emergency and don't have the money it's probably better to keep the money in that hsa because of all the tax benefits that you're getting that money is growing tax-free, and if you withdraw it, like when you're old, to pay for a medical bill, then it won't be taxed there as well. Then there is another rule where if you reach age 65 or if you become disabled, you can withdraw the HSA funds without penalty, but the amounts will be taxable as ordinary income if they're not used for a medical expense. So it's basically like a traditional 401k or IRA in that sense. But yeah, the reason I wanted to talk about this is because I had a friend talk about how he had some medical operation and then he was just like, oh yeah, well my HSA paid for it. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that's still your money. And it's kind of similar to withdrawing from your 401k to pay for a medical operation, which I mean, I get like if you don't have any money and would otherwise be withdrawing from credit cards or something, it might make sense. But otherwise, you probably want to keep it in there for those tax advantages. So while I'm on this topic, there is one other investment vehicle that I wanted to talk about, and that is a 529 plan. And that is usually for a child to save for college. And the idea there is that the earnings will not be subject to tax if they're withdrawn for a education expense. 
But what happens if your kid does not go to college and you have this leftover money? Well, there are a few things you can do. One is to change the beneficiary and you can do that to like an immediate family member. Another thing is if the 529 account has existed for more than 15 years, then you can convert that money into a Roth IRA, but it has to be into the beneficiary's Roth IRA. The money that you want to convert has to have been in there for at least five years, and this will also count against that annual Roth IRA contribution limit. So this year you can only do 6,500, and then you could do that amount every year until you reach the lifetime maximum of 35K for the plan. So it's not really ideal to be using it for this. Ideally, you would just spend it on college, but if you have to do it, I think it can be kind of like some sort of backup. Okay. Okay, so hopefully that covers most of those tax-efficient investment vehicles. Now I'm going to move on to talking about how taxes work with like deductions and stuff. So when I first learned how this works, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. But how it works is that there's what's called the standard deduction. And for single filers, that's 13850 for 2023. And then it's doubled for married people. And then there's what's called itemized deductions, and those are including stuff like mortgage interest and state and local tax. But if your itemized deductions are not more than the standard deduction, then you would just take the standard deduction. So basically, if you're taking the standard deduction, then any of your itemized deductions don't really count and they're not giving you any tax benefit. So it's actually really hard to get your itemized deductions over that 27k threshold if you are married unless you have a mortgage. And you can only deduct the interest on the first 750k in loans. And then whether or not you're single or married, the cap on the state and local tax deduction is 10k, which is very low. I mean, that combines like state income tax plus property tax and maybe even sales tax if you're paying a lot of that. I don't actually know. I don't pay sales tax, so don't quote me on that. So one consequence of this standard deduction versus itemized deduction thing is that if you're doing charitable donations, that won't be tax deductible unless you're above that 27.7k threshold for married people. So I think during COVID they did have one exclusion where you could do up to $600 in charity contribution even if you didn't itemize. I don't know if that's still around, but still, that was only $600. So this is incredibly frustrating because basically it means that unless you have a mortgage, you cannot give to charity and have it be tax deductible. At least for that first 27.7k or whatever it takes to get you over that threshold. The other thing is that if you're doing any kind of sports book churning or any other kind of gambling, any gambling winnings are taxed as ordinary income, but gambling losses count as an itemized deduction. So you can't just directly deduct losses from winnings. 
unless you're above that 27.7k threshold for married people. So suppose that you're doing some sports betting, you place $1,000 bet on one game and win that, and then you place another $1,000 bet on another game and lose that. If you aren't above that threshold to be itemizing, you would have to pay tax on that $1,000 winnings even though you already lost that $1,000 on the other game. So yeah, we are fortunate enough to have a mortgage so we don't have to deal with that, but I can see how that can be incredibly frustrating and kind of doesn't even make sense to be doing any of those sportsbook promotions like if you can't even deduct losses from winnings. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Okay, so that's all I had for taxes. And then the next couple things I wanted to talk about are related to compensation. So I realized that not everyone has these, but the first thing that I wanted to talk about are restricted stock units or RSUs. So this is not the same thing as a stock option. I know a lot of people just kind of say stock option whenever they refer to any kind of stock-based compensation. And all it is is an option to buy a stock at a certain price. Then if the stock goes up in value and you're able to sell the stock, then you would make money. But sometimes with these private companies, it can be hard to sell the stock. So with RSUs, usually those are with public companies. And how it works is like you would get, for example, say $10,000 worth of RSU that's vested over four years. So what would happen is the company would buy $10,000 worth of stock on your behalf and then it would be sitting in account for you and then you would get one fourth of that money every year for four years. So ideally the stock would go up in value so you would end up with more than $10,000 that they had originally promised you but of course it could also be less than that. And then RSUs are taxed when they vest and what matters here is just the value of the stock when they vest that original $10,000 or whatever is irrelevant for this and most of the time the employer will liquidate some of those RSUs to cover the tax. So suppose you had 10 RSUs vesting you might only actually get six of them because four of those were sold to pay the tax. Then the cost basis for the RSUs is basically reset when they vest. So you can kind of think of it as if the employer sold all the stock and paid the tax and then they gave you the money and then you bought the stock. That's sort of how it works practically. So you might be thinking, you know, should you hold on to your RSUs or should you just sell them? And I think here you should just reverse that question. If you had $10,000 or 20000 or however much money, would you buy that stock to hold on to it? I don't hold any single stocks. I think a lot of people would prefer to be diversified because you also have to think like the stock performance and also your job security are kind of tied together. So you might want some more diversification from that. But of course, it's up to you. You know, this is not financial advice. Then another thing that people might have available to them is the employee stock purchase plan. Usually how this works is there is a holding period which is often six months and during this period you will be contributing a portion of your paycheck. I think the maximum is 15% and then at the end of the holding period 
you will be able to buy the stock at a 15% discount and it will be either 15% off of the price at the beginning of the holding period or 15% off the price at the end of the holding period, whichever one is lower. So if the price of the stock went up during those six months, then you would just get extra money beyond that 15%. So usually in the worst case, you're getting 15% and some people might not think that is very good. I mean, I already think that's good, but it actually is even better because you have to think that that entire amount of money is not in there for the entire six months because you're doing the paycheck deductions throughout those six months. So because of this, the minimum annualized return actually ends up being 91.6% when you do the math. So I mean, 91.6% is basically free money, but I don't know, for some reason, a lot of my coworkers choose not to participate in this. So like I said before, I don't like to hold any single stocks and especially not ones that are tied to my employment. So I usually just sell all the shares once they're bought for me. And when you do that, you do have to pay ordinary income tax on the gains. There are some complicated rules. If you choose to hold the stock for a bit longer, you get to save some money on tax. I remember looking into it and it was very complicated. And I think either way, there's no way of getting out of paying the ordinary income tax on that 15% discount. But I think there are ways you can just be paying the long-term capital gains rate on any of the gains beyond that. But for me, I would rather just have the cash or put it into S&P 500 to stay diversified. That's just how I do it. And yeah, in case you couldn't tell already, I do like to invest in the stock market. I think it has a really good track record and I like investing in low-cost ETFs because you can get really diversified for a very very low fee and this is kind of off topic but I always see a lot of chatter on whether or not someone should pay off their mortgage or if they should invest in the stock market it's always the question of would you do this if it was a 3% mortgage or a 4% mortgage or 6 or what about 7 and I'm always very pro stock market like it's average 10% or the past 100 years so that's great and then also you have to think about how mortgage interest is tax deductible like I said before and then a lot of the time in these discussions people ask the question oh well if you had a paid off house would you borrow money at three percent to invest in the stock market as if this is some kind of gotcha and I'm always like uh yes I would like 3% is such a low interest rate, it's basically free money, I mean, come on. And also, especially if it's a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage, I mean, they'll give you 3% for 30 years? Like, are you kidding me? That's some serious commitment. And the great thing about home mortgages is they can't be margin-called. So if your house, like, drops in value by 50%, they can't just be like, oh, sorry, we're going to sell the house to pay the loan, and you got to leave. Whereas if you take a margin loan out against your stocks, well, I know like pledged asset line is different, but if you just do a straight margin loan, then as soon as you drop below some threshold, they would just liquidate your entire account. And not only would you have lost money, but maybe you had some capital gains taxes that now would become due. 
So yeah, I would never do that. Like I'd be pretty paranoid. I'd just be checking the stock market every day to make sure that doesn't happen. But yeah, I know the interest rate is a bit higher now if you're buying a house, but I still think that mortgages are great. Another comment that people often have is what about inflation? And yes, when we talk about that annualized return of 10% or 11% for the S&P 500 over the last 100 years, that is not adjusted for inflation. If you do adjust that for inflation, I think it's somewhere like 7 or 8%. But when you're comparing this to like the interest on your savings account or the interest on your mortgage, those numbers are also not adjusted for inflation. So whenever you're doing a comparison, Make sure you're comparing them apples to apples. So in most cases, that would be comparing the pre-inflation adjusted numbers. And the reason I'm saying this is because I just saw a comment on the Reddit Financial Independence Forum. A guy was talking about how his mortgage was 5.8% and then the inflation adjusted returns of the stock market are 6.8%. So it's not that much less. And like I said, this is not the correct comparison. And yeah, this is a huge financial decision. I mean, paying off your house is several hundreds of thousands of dollars. So you just want to make sure that you're doing the math correctly on this. And especially if you're multiplying things out by 30 years or more, any difference in the interest rate just becomes even more amplified. And one way that you can quickly calculate this is by using the rule of 72. And what that is, is you take 72 and divide it by the interest rate, and that will tell you how many years it will take to double. So if you had an 8% interest rate, 72 divided by 8 is 9, so it would take 9 years for that money to double. And then if you had a 6% interest rate, 72 divided by 6 is 12, so it would take 12 years to double. And you can continue to do this math for 30 years, 40 years, 50 years, or whatever, and you'll start to see pretty huge differences. So yeah, you can probably see by now that my risk tolerance is pretty high just because of how I think about the stock market and all the churns that I do. But my wife is a lot more risk averse, so I think that kind of balances us out. So just take what I say with a grain of salt, and again, it's not financial advice. Oh, and one more thing on the topic of margin and leverage. I sometimes get this question, why not just get a leveraged ETF? if you want to have leverage but you don't want to be able to get margin called. So if you don't know what a leveraged ETF is, it is basically a multiple of an ETF. So for example, if you had a 2x leveraged ETF, then they would be borrowing money so that they would get double the returns. So if the underlying ETF went up by 10%, then the 2x ETF would go up by 20%. And similarly, if it went down by 10%, then the leveraged ETF would go down by 20%. So this may sound great, but the problem that it runs into is something called volatility drag and what that means is that this fund will be constantly rebalancing itself to maintain that 2x leverage so for example say you had a 2x etf and the starting price was 100 and then it went down 20 percent down to 80 it would then rebalance so then if it went up 20 percent from there it would only go up by 16 so that would only get you back to 96 
Whereas if you just had the underlying 1x ETF, it would go down by 10 and then back up by 9. So you'd be back to 99. And then if you had this stock on margin without doing rebalancing, then you would just have two of this stock. So it would go down by 2 times 10 and then back up by 2 times 9. So you would be at 298, whereas in the 2x leverage scenario with the rebalancing, you are only back to 96. So hopefully that math makes sense to you. I know it is kind of a complicated concept, but these leveraged ETFs need to do this rebalancing. Otherwise, if the stock market just went down by 50%, 2x of that is 100%, so it would just be down to zero. And yeah, that fund would be over. It wouldn't be able to grow back up because it doesn't have anything at that point. So it'd be the same thing as if you were just doing 2x margin. So that's leveraged ETFs in a nutshell. I do occasionally see some threads on Reddit that talk about these, and I can see how they could make sense, but I'm not currently invested in any of them at the moment. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about some common scams in the financial world, and I'm not talking about scam like Nigerian print scam. I'm talking about a scam where you're basically overpaying for something Thing that you don't need. So the first one is timeshares, and I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this knows about them. How it generally works is you pay a pretty big upfront cost, and then you have to pay these annual maintenance fees, all just so that you can get like two weeks a year at this resort. They might make sense for someone who knows that they want to spend two weeks in Hawaii at that resort every single year. But a lot of the times they're just ridiculously overpriced. And it's always these salesmen that are trying to rope you in. They have a lot of manipulation tactics. So they always have these offers for coming to stay at a timeshare property and attend a presentation. And in return, you'll get a bunch of points and a really cheap rate for those nights that you're staying there. So you have to think that if they're paying that much just for you to get in the door and attend the presentation, they must be making bank off of these timeshare deals. There's got to be a lot of cases where the people cannot go to their property at those designated two weeks and they're just paying the annual maintenance fees for nothing. Not to mention the purchase price of the timeshare, which was probably like 10 or 20k and has lost most of its value after you bought it. The next kind of financial scam that I wanted to talk about is a whole life insurance policy, or it's sometimes called universal life insurance. The idea behind these is that you're sort of combining a life insurance policy with some sort of investment product, and with it, they'll be baking in a bunch of fees. So it's important to decouple the life insurance part from the investment and think about what is the purpose of getting life insurance. And that is to replace your income if you die so that your dependents would have something to live off of. So if you don't have any dependents or you don't have an income, then it is likely that you don't need life insurance. And typically what it is for term life insurance is that you pay a monthly fee for a term and then if you die during that term, your dependents will get that payout. But if you're still alive at the end of that term, then you just don't get anything and that's the end of the term. 
So for a healthy person in their 20s and 30s who has a low probability of dying, usually the premiums are really low, just like 20 or $30 per month for a few hundred thousand dollar policy. Whereas for a whole life plan, it's some sort of deal where after the end of the term, you have some cash value in the policy that you could cash out or maybe invest and earn some interest. The common companies that do this are Northwestern Ranch Mutual and Gerber. And I just looked at Gerber and for a 20 year old, for a $300,000 policy, it costs $225 per month. And this is just absolutely ridiculous. I didn't really read more into what exactly that gets you, but no life insurance for a 20 year old should cost nearly that much. And you have to think, like, if a 20-year-old invests $200 per month over the course of their lifetime, that's going to be worth, like, several million dollars. So, again, you know, the salesmen for these whole life insurance policies make a lot of money off you in the commission. They probably have some advanced marketing tactics where they try to trick you and are like, oh, well, what happens to that money that you pay to the insurance company if you don't die? Like, it's just gone. What if I told you that you can keep some of that and invest it? And it's kind of funny because the IRS said that any returns from a whole life policy are not taxable. And that's just because you're already getting absolutely fleeced by these companies. So if you have a financial advisor that is recommending whole life, that might be a sign that you need to find a new financial advisor. Okay, so moving on to the next scam, and this isn't really that big of a scam, but certain types of travel insurance are just not really worth it. So with any type of insurance, you have to think like, the insurance company is making money, so you don't really want to be doing it unless you have to. Like for life insurance, where you would really need your dependents to have an income, or for medical insurance, which could absolutely bankrupt you. And I'm also not talking about medical travel insurance, which I can see how it could be necessary in some cases. I'm talking about like the checkout page when you're booking a flight ticket. So I just looked this up for a flight from Portland to Los Angeles. That's a $245 flight. You can add protection for $22. And it just has a few bullet points on the types of stuff that it covers. So a normal person might just look at those few bullet points and say, yes, you can have my $22. But then when they actually have something that they need to file a claim for, if something goes wrong, then they have to dig through these piles of fine print to figure out what is actually covered and what are all the exclusions. They probably have to spend hours on the phone to try and support their claim. All of this just to maybe get reimbursed for a hotel in case their trip was delayed or something like that. And usually this kind of insurance is already provided if you have a premium travel credit card. So yeah, I mean, it is always good to make sure that you're insured for all the things that you want to be insured for, but that should be a calculated decision and it shouldn't just be on a limb like, yes, here's my $22 while I book this flight. So a couple more scams are ones that we discovered when we first got into home ownership. And the first one is a home warranty. And this is something that our realtor tried to negotiate with the seller to give to us for a year. 
And after we got this, we learned that this is really just to cover like major appliances breaking. Like if our water heater breaks or our refrigerator totally breaks. And even if that does happen, it's going to be a whole process. Like they're going to send someone out to look at it to see if they repair it. It's not really ideal for something like if you need a plumber to come by and fix your toilet because there was like a $75 per visit fee or something like that. And like I said before, these insurance companies, they have done the math. They are going to be making money and you only need to be signing up for this kind of policy if like a broken water heater would bankrupt you. The other thing with home ownership is pest control. And we actually had someone come door to door through our neighborhood to try and sell this to us. And it was something that we considered because I was in the process of killing some mice and they wanted to charge us like 50 or $100 per month. And they said for that they would come in and kill all of the pests that we currently had. And then they would come check on our traps once per quarter. And my wife was like, well, if you're only coming once per quarter, then why do we need to pay you every single month? And yeah, I mean, $100 per month to come check on our traps once per quarter is a lot of money for that. I mean, that would probably take them like 15 minutes and see that there's nothing there and then they could just leave. I suppose a lot of people are just so afraid of pests that they want someone else to take care of it for them and then they want someone on call that they can just call if they ever have a problem. In our case, I just spent $20 on some mouse traps, and that took care of the issue relatively easily. And then the next thing related to homeownership that is kind of a scam is paying for solar to be installed in your house. So I don't want to say that solar itself is a scam. Usually you're getting a fair price for the stuff that you receive, but it's just that the salesman can be very sleazy and sometimes lie to you about how it's going to be saving you money when it isn't. And I'm all about getting solar for the environmental reasons, but I think it's just good to know the truth about how much you're going to be paying for it. So a common thing that they do is talk about your current monthly utilities payment, and then they give you this like 30-year financing to try to get the monthly payment for the solar to be less than your utilities payment. But what they don't tell you is that you will still need to be paying the electric company to stay on the grid. And a lot of the times the ROI just isn't really there. Suppose that you had a $25,000 solar installation only to save $50 per month on your electric bill. That's about a 2% ROI, and of course you could do a lot better in the stock market. Another thing that I've seen these companies do is not really scamming you, but it's more scamming the IRS. Because the IRS has this tax credit where it's based on a percentage of the solar cost. And what they will do is bake in a loan origination fee towards the cost of the solar. So what this is, is similar to buying down points on your mortgage where you pay an upfront cost in order to get a lower interest rate. And then they won't tell you that you're doing this. They'll just say that, okay, your cost of solar is $50,000. And then they will make it sound like you can just collect the 30% tax credit off of that entire amount. 
the IRS has written very specific rules about how you're not allowed to take the tax credit off of financing costs and only towards the installation and the cost of the panels themselves. But we're kind of in this weird area where the consumer doesn't even know what that cost of the financing is. And the solar companies always tell their salesmen to not tell the customer under any circumstances what the cost of the financing are. So it's kind of this weird loophole. And well, it's not a loophole, like it is a violation of the rules, but somehow they're able to get away with it. And it's just kind of frustrating, you know, a lot of people are just trying to get solar, like, for the good of the planet, but then the capitalism and the sleazy salesmen are just kind of ruining it. It's just sad, and I've heard that this is just an American thing, like, in other countries, they don't have these kind of problems. Okay, so this episode has already gotten very long, so I think I'm just going to stop here. I do have a few more topics that I wanted to talk about that are kind of related to this so i'll see how my analytics do on this episode and go from there and if you made it this far as usual feel free to let me know what you think thanks for listening and until next time